listening to the Arise Church podcast. We are an Acts 29 church in Ventura, California, where we exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage culture. Find out more info or hear more sermons at our website, ariseventura.com. Thanks for listening. Just by way of a little lighthearted conversation, if you know anything about brands or about, um, you know, culture in terms of just things that stand out as artifacts, cultural artifacts and those things, you probably can agree with me that one way to tell whether or not something is really as good as it says it is, or whether or not uh, the expectations that are being sold to you by any manufacturer or whatnot are exaggerated, is to measure that thing over against the real thing, over against something else. Think about the brands that we so love as a culture. I say that my double wall vacuum sealed coffee mug from Ross was great till I got a hydro flask. <laughs> I recently heard somebody having a conversation about their, uh, this parka they got for $30 from Costco and how good it was, but it wasn't 30 seconds until the conversation switched to Patagonia for all kinds of reasons, right? We've laughed and we've joked as a family before about how much that Chrysler 300 looks like a Bentley on the block until, of course, a Bentley hits the block. (laughs) The reality is, is that comparison and putting uh, a thing to uh, a test really comes down to just setting it over against the real thing. The best way to Uh, determine whether or not something is really that great is to size it up against a genuine artifact. That's true in every area of life. We just proved it with coffee mugs and jackets and cars. And if you've had that experience like me where you bought the double wall, vacuum sealed, and everything else mug, and then you got a hydro flash, you realize real quickly, oh, it just ain't the same. (laughs) It just ain't the same. Well, Paul knew this to be exactly true when he continued his opening of his letter to the Colossians with a hymn about the majesty and the worthiness of Jesus Christ. We've been looking at Colossians chapter 1, and starting in the beginning, we've been seeing this prayer of thanksgiving and then a prayer of request that he gave on behalf of the Colossians. And then now he just kind of busts out in, or bursts out into a song because he just couldn't hold it together in thinking about the majesty of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul jumps in to a a hymn or a song, this run-on sentence of uh, this great and rich and deep theology that affirms all the things that we just sang about, the deity of Christ and his being God and why that's important for us and why we ought to worship him in spite of it. And so I want us to start by just reading Colossians 1, verses 15 down to 20. 
Some of us have a scripture journal. If you don't, that's fine. Just meet us in the book of Colossians, which is probably uh, midway through your new, uh, or uh, three quarters away through your New Testament. Paul's letter to the Colossians will be on the first page of that. In verse number 15, he starts and he says, he, speaking about Jesus Christ, who he's just called the beloved. He says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in, all, in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Our text today reminds us that Jesus Christ is supreme in every and any and all things, from creation to recreation. Jesus Christ is supreme in every and any and all things, from creation to recreation, and therefore, he and he alone is worthy of our worship. If you want to title this sermon or on your page taking notes, it's simply the supremacy of Jesus Christ. In this passage, we see Jesus as supreme in creation and new creation by looking at three points. Him as supreme in creation, supreme in the church, and supreme at the cross. I'm going to take these somewhat slowly, and I hope that we can take this theology, which is such, it's so vast and it's so deep and it's so rich and it's so good, but... It could be easily not practical. I hope that we can apply it to our hearts and make some, make some moves toward making much of him. Jesus Christ, the supreme in creation. Did you read it? He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is supreme in creation because he himself is God and he is the creator. That was an ambitious claim that Paul was making to these Colossians who had been being challenged by Gnostics who were saying that, yeah, Jesus is good, but it's kind of the first step on the ladder. There's just so much more that you can amount to. There's so much higher that you can go. That Jesus is, he's all right, but he's not it. And Paul's been praying to God in the company of a, a, a beginning thanksgiving and prayer, and he just basically says, let me remind you last week that he, speaking about the beloved son, Jesus, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transformed us or transferred us to the kingdom of his uh, beloved son. Sorry, he, the father, delivered us from darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And then he says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We should be reading that on and on and on. It didn't really stop there. We took seven days to get back. He just goes on and on that we have redemption, we have forgiveness of sins. And then he says he's the image of the invisible God. He's not just 
another good teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a God among other gods who are just as equal as he is. No, he is the exact representation and image of God the creator. That word for image in the original language and in our language, it's icon. That's where we get our idea of icon. What is an icon? Who is an icon other than a person who is a symbol of greatness? He said that Jesus Christ is the icon, the image of the greatness of God. He's the exact image of God. And by now, you should be racing back to John chapter 1, which we started in about uh, verse 5. But let me just read to you the beginning of the book of John which says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John, an apostle before Paul would ever write or even be converted uh, to Christianity, John, having walked with the Lord Jesus, was already writing to his readers to say, yeah, Jesus is not just another prophet. He's not just another good teacher. He wasn't just one of the rabbis. He was God. And everything that you see came into being by him. He's God, the creator. He was with God and he was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. If we're going to see Jesus Christ as supreme in creation, the first thing that we've got to know is that he's supreme in creation because he's the creator. Hebrews chapter 1 would actually say it a little bit uh, different. The writer of Hebrews, if I can get there, says, through him also, he created the world. In fact, let me back up. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. And then he says, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Not only does Jesus Christ show us the greatness of God and uh, the godness of God, if you were, we know that the winds and the waves obeyed him. We know that he he raised the dead. There were all kinds of miracles that he performed. But the, the, the book of Hebrews tells us that he's the exact imprint of his nature. There are things about the character of God that we only see in the flesh when we look at Jesus Christ. The things that he loves, the things that he hates, the justice he upholds, his heart for the marginalized, his grace and his truth, his holiness. Jesus Christ is in the flesh and he was tempted in every way, but yet what? Did not sin. He's sinless. He's just like God the Father because he is God. Did you see the diagram? Jesus is not the Father, but Jesus is God. And as God, he's the creator. Another way we see that he's supreme in creation is if we look here 
Back down in Colossians chapter 1, it goes on and it says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That word firstborn can probably throw you off because you just heard that he was the creator and now we're saying that he's the firstborn of all creation. What exactly does that mean? Well, a clue comes from Psalm 89 and verse 27. Psalm in 89, the psalmist speaking prophecy and speaking of David. And he says this. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, David was the youngest of his brothers and sisters. He was the youngest sibling. How is it that he would be the firstborn if that just means that in ordinal fashion he came first? It doesn't. What it means is that he has conferred on him this special priority and rank as being the one who is at the tip top, the one who is first, the one who comes before all and is before all. He's given priority because he's numero uno. He's number one. He goes and he says that in Colossians, he's the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, right back to seeing him as the number one because he breathed it all into being. It was fascinating looking at this this week, as he said, for by him all things were created, and he says, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He says, the things that you can see, the things that you cannot see, the things that are tangible, the things that are spiritual, the things that are here and now and the things that exist in eternity and in heaven, Jesus the beloved Son, in whom we find reconciliation with God and redemption by his blood, is the one who brought it all into being. Things in heaven on earth, visible and invisible. And then he goes on and he talks about thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. The idea is that all these things are in subjection to and underneath him. That at his footstool, that beneath his sovereign rule, is the whole universe. The words that are used for thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, kind of seems to us like, yeah, the same, same, same thing. Well, he's talking about the people. He's talking about the power. He's talking about the laws. He's talking about the realms. And the truth of the matter is, is that he's applying all these really to the invisible or to the spiritual. He's saying that the dark spiritual realms where powers, we know that Satan himself is the prince of the air. We know that there are demons that parade around the, the world and cause havoc on the earth and brokenness has come in. It says that Jesus Christ rules all of them. And so that means that there's no reason for you and I to be afraid. If we're in relationship with that God, with that Jesus... It also comes down and sits in our laps in our present day when you think about the fact that he's saying rulers, authorities, thrones, dominions, 
That means that politicians and political parties and policies, none of those things, none of those things exist without Jesus Christ. He brought it all into being. It's all in subjection and underneath him. And he goes on and says all things were created through him and for him. Instead of saying created for him, he could say created toward him. All things are uh, uh, created by him and through him and, and toward him. The idea is that he's not just the, the one who is the creator, but he's also the concern or the goal. That there are thrones, there are dominions, there are spiritual beings, there are laws, there are things that we see, there are things that we don't see. There's a whole world. Yes, it's fallen into sin, but at the end of the day, it was all created toward the glory of Jesus Christ and to the concern of him and him alone. He's the concern because he is the goal. Think about the last, ver the last verse in Romans chapter 11. Last verse in Romans chapter 11, after Paul talks about this glorious gospel, he's really gone on for uh, 11 chapters to talk about the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And then he just says in verse number 36 of chapter 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. It makes sense then when, when you turn the page into Romans chapter 12, if you know your Bibles or if you're familiar with this, that all of a sudden he says that you're reasonable, and that word is logic, your logical worship and service in this life is to not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. This is spiritual worship because everything, everything hinges in creation, the things that we see and the things that we don't see, on God. In Jesus Christ, who created it all. He says the only spiritual worship that makes sense is a life of obedience to Christ because he's the concern and the goal of everything in creation. But he didn't stop there, Paul didn't. Back in Colossians chapter 1, after he goes through that, he says he's before all things. And in him all things hold together. Jesus Christ is supreme in creation, not just because he's the creator or the concern, but also because he's the coherence. In fact, some of your Bible translations would say, in, in him all things consist. All things are held together. He's the glue. Everything in the universe coheres because of Jesus Christ. He made it, and he holds it together. I've been flipping back and forth this week, and I'm just reading all these to you. I hope you're catching them. Hebrews, back in Hebrews in chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, we read a portion of it, but let's finish our way. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Verse number 3 in the second half says, and he, holds, uh, sorry, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then it goes and says that he made purification for sins and he sat down. It's not hard work for him, but it's all held together by him even while he's seated on the throne today. That's the Lord Jesus that we say it's all about. 
That's the Lord Jesus that Paul turned on a dime and said, what are you worried about these false teachers who are trying to tell you you need to go and worship other gods or trying to tell you your faith is not authentic or trying to tell you that they don't see evidence that you really do know God or in relationship with him? Do you know who he is? He's Jesus Christ, the supreme one, the one who is supreme in all creation. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on and says that Jesus is supreme in a new creation through the church. You probably already saw it. Verse number 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Head of the body. A body always implies something. If there's a body, there's a head. In fact, it doesn't matter if you're a student and you're writing. You turn a paper into your teacher with a body only, and what are they going to say? Where is the? Where's the heading? Where's the header? The head represents the beginning, the starting point, the lead, that which everything else flows out of. And Paul here, multiple times across the New Testament, has talked about the church as the body of Christ, and he says he is the head of the body. Jesus Christ is the head of the body. It's not a great preacher or a great pastor. It's not a great program. It's not uh, a pope. It's not anybody other than Jesus Christ. He is the head of the body. And he's talking about the, the church invisible all over the world that can't be seen or numbered And that one day we'll be worshiping around the throne and still can't be numbered. And it's people from all over the place and from every single generation. Jesus Christ is the head of that body. And he says he's the beginning. He's the alpha. He's the one that started the church. He's the one that made the church. He's the one that leads the church. He qualifies it again and says, the firstborn from the dead. Now we have that same word again. Is Jesus Christ the first one who was ever raised from the dead? No, absolutely not. He isn't. He's raised people from the dead in his life before he even died. So it can't be that what he's saying is that he's the first person to ever be resurrected. No, again, his death and resurrection His being raised from the dead catapults him to the highest rank and to first place. This is all the theology. I I, I mean, I wish I could make it really practical and give you 10 ways that you can save your marriage and everything else. But the reality is, is that if we anchor our faith in understanding this Jesus, that he is that supreme, and the, the word goes on and says he's preeminent, which means supreme, that if this is the Jesus we're worshiping, then all the other stuff, then all the other stuff, It's all down here, and he maintains first place. It gets anchored in foundation. Paul says the resurrection made Jesus the firstborn in priority and in order, and that in everything he might be preeminent. 
think it begs a question. When we think about the resurrection and we understand who God made Jesus to be, even thinking about Philippians chapter 2, when we hear about his humiliation all the way to death and death on a cross, and therefore God exalted him highly and set him at the throne at his right side, and it says, and so therefore every knee is going to bow before him. That we might have all kinds of icons in our culture, but that icon will be the one who everyone looks to. He's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. When we think about that, can we say that in our lives he is preeminent? Is Jesus supreme in your life? That's the question I have to answer. I have to answer that question. I'm working through that this week and saying, do people think that in my life, Jesus Christ is the supreme ruler of all? My finances, my parenting, my decision making. If he rules over all dominions, does he rule over my decisions? If everything that you can't see in the spiritual realm are all in subjection to him, what about the way that I spend my time? It's a good question. And I think that what we need to realize is that it really doesn't hinge on whether or not I am able to say confidently yes and amen. What it hinges on is that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent for. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That sentence just means that God thought it was the best thing, the absolutely most wise thing to have all of his fullness squished into the man we call Jesus Christ in the flesh. God was pleased to do that. He was happy to do that. He delighted in it. And when we say fullness, we're talking about fullness. (laughs) Fully God while he was fully man. Paul puts Jesus Christ forward and says, bring all of those other gods that these Gnostics are trying to tell you are so much more deep and there's so much more knowledge. You can go so higher if you just know other gods. Bring them and size them up against the one who in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He couldn't let that one go by the time you get to chapter 2, which I guess we'll get there next year. Somebody laughed. (laughs) Chapter 2, verse 9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. He has all that rule and authority. He is the head of the church. And you have been filled in him. The fullness, of God, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him bodily. And God has made you his body, those of you who believe in Jesus Christ by faith. That's good news, friends. That's good news. But if that's not good news, let's go to our last point. Jesus is supreme in the new creation at the cross. Again, we said that Jesus Christ 
is supreme in all things from creation to new creation and therefore he's worthy of worship. We've seen him in creation as the creator. We've seen him as the concern or the goal. We've seen him as the one who holds it all together. We've seen that he is the one who is the head of the church and now Paul turns to probably the most beautiful portion and says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. All that theology and all the stuff that can blow your head up and all the good news about who Jesus Christ is, it all comes down to a cross. He says he's the icon, he's the one who's preeminent, he's the one who's supreme, and he died a bloody death on a dirty cross. In the kingdom, everything is upside down. It's not about excelling to the tip top and doing your own thing. He said he came and he was about his father's business. He sweat drops of blood and prayed, Lord, would you let this cup of your wrath pass by me? Do I have to go to the cross? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. This is Jesus Christ. He's come to reconcile all things. Does that mean each and every person and place and policy will be reconciled to him? Or does that mean that everything will be in subjection to him and everything will be put underneath him and all things will be made right the way that they were created to be, even though we experience all kinds of brokenness in this life? I think it means that. Because he says, through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so he talks about two different kinds of reconciliation, clearly. He talks about a cosmic reconciliation of all the things that have been created by him. And then he talks about a very specific and a personal reconciliation that was purchased by his blood at the cross. You think about the cross of Jesus Christ and what it has done and what it has purchased for us. The first and foremost thing must be that we understand it has reconciled us with God. Friends, that's what you and I need. I don't, I don't need, per se, 10 steps on how to be a good dad, even though I really need that. <laughs> What I need is my relationship with God, the creator and father, to be made right and reconciled. And Jesus Christ made that, away, made that possible at the cross. He did that at the cross. It's interesting. I considered whether or not we should put this all into one sermon. He's been saying he is and in him and by him and through him and for him and he is and he is and through him and to himself. And then all of a sudden in verse 21, it says, and you. This is practical because that reconciliation and all that work and all who he is, is applied personally to you by faith. You were once alienated and hostile in mind. That's why you need to be reconciled to God. You're doing evil deeds. 
If we were to put on a screen the thoughts that I had today, not just this week, but today, I would run out of here like a lunatic, not wanting you guys to know because uh, just of my thoughts. But what about the deeds, the things that I have done? We don't celebrate those things. We've participated in all kinds of evil works. And he says that this is who you are. So Paul thought that it was the right thing to do, to write to these uh, Colossians who are being unsettled by false teaching and to put up a beautiful portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ, something that is absolutely priceless. And then right next to that, to take like their high school picture and say, this you. How many of y'all really excited about the picture you took for your high school yearbook? (laughs) No, it really was that ugly, right? He says, this is really who you are. This is really who you were. This is Christ, this beautiful icon, the exact image and representation of God, and and that's you. Evil deeds. Alienated. Alienated, cut off from a relationship with God. He's now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. And he's done that in order to present you holy and blameless and beautiful and above reproach and justified and no no condemnation before you and clean and clear. He's done all that in himself for you. That's the Jesus that we say it's all about. That's the Jesus that we worship, and that's the Jesus. He is the only, the only true and wise God. Now, I had a hard time this morning working through this, and let me just read to you what I wrote. I didn't know how it'd come out. I didn't know if we'd be doing some part two and preaching forever, but I just want you to hear this in the way in which it came out just a couple hours ago. There already has been and now likely always will be a conversation about who is first place in basketball. The tragedy in our community this morning that has already immortalized Kobe Bryant in the eyes of many, has unquestionably sealed the deal to say no matter how many points LeBron James continues to score or how many championship rings Michael Jordan has or how many superstars come up behind each of them, Kobe Bryant for many has been or has been and now forever will be first place. But I'd be a bad preacher if I didn't remind you that there's another icon whose creativity is unmatched, whose cross is undefeated, and whose death undoubtedly sealed the deal for him in first place and for you forever. Jesus Christ, the supreme and preeminent creator of heaven and earth, he's first place in the universe. He's first place in the church we saw. He's first place in eternity, and that came by the cross. So I came to tell you today that Jesus Christ is cooler than your Yeti, right? He's cooler than that hydro flask, literally. And he's worthy of first place in everything. First place in our families. He needs to have first place in our marriages. He needs to have first place in our professions. First place with our possessions. First place in our mission. First place in our ministry. First place in our minds. First place in our time. First place in our love. First place in our lives. 
first place in our conversations, first place in convictions, first place in our politics, first place in our eating and our drinking. Jesus Christ must have first place because he is first place. He's preeminent, he's supreme in all of the universe, so he needs to be supreme in all of my dealings. Preeminent in the universe. How about preeminent in you? Supreme in our art, in what we watch. First place and supreme in our worship. Give the Lord Jesus first place. He really is supreme in everything. It's my hope that as we transition to communion, we can think about how he became first place. Most people must ascend and climb. It was just a couple days ago, actually 24 hours about, that Kobe Bryant went public and said, hey, on to number two because LeBron James just surpassed him in scoring. The way you get to first place in terms of the natural is you go higher and higher and higher. But the communion table reminds us that the way that Jesus Christ went to first place is he went lower and lower and lower and lower for you, for me. When you come to the table and see the body of the Lord broken and the blood poured out for your sake, might you remember that is the most faithful preacher, the most faithful proclamation, and the absolute best reminder we could ever have of the gospel. For as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray.